Okay, so we're in Galatians chapter one, uh, as Damien said. Normally what I like to do is I like to sort of set the context and the backstory before we dive into scripture. But today's gonna be a little different. We're gonna do it the other way around. We're gonna jump straight in and then I'll use scripture to unpack the context. So bear with me. It's gonna feel a little bit like we're drinking from a fire hose at times, but uh, we'll, we will come up for air, all right? So if you're not there yet, you can read off the screen. Galatians 1 verse 13 starts like this. This is Paul writing to the church in Galatians. He says, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Fire hose, right? I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia later on to return to Damascus. He gives a bit of an itinerary. Verse 22, he says, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. And here's our verse that we're going to anchor the morning in. Verse 23, they only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. One translation says, our former enemy who once brutally persecuted us is now preaching the same gospel he tried to destroy. That begs the question, it should beg the question, how? How does this happen? How do you go from persecuting one day to preaching the next day? How do you go from being a Pharisee to being a poster child of the gospel? Or in Paul's case, how do you go from executing people because of the gospel to being exhibit A because of what the gospel can do in you? It's a question I want to ask today. But, as promised, the context. All right, we're going to start off with a problem which is this persecutor, but we need to rewind about five or 600 years before this was written to the church in Galatia to get an idea of really what's going on, to get a right and biblical picture of what's going on here. So if we rewind five or 600 years before Paul planted the church in Galatia, we find the nation of Israel who've abandoned God. They thought, thanks, but no thanks, we're done with you, we're just gonna take our inheritance and go, we've got our king, so we're sorted, thanks, you got us out of Egypt, that was wonderful, but actually we know better. And God, in his kindness, handed them over to themselves. And one thing led to another, they picked a fight that they couldn't win, and the northern kingdoms descended on Israel and decimated them. We are talking dark ages, dungeons kind of decimation. They executed and shot on sight. They tore houses down. They burnt fields. They would take rubble and actually dump it in the field along with bags of salt just to make sure that if anyone escapes, there's no way they're going to survive. They're not going to be able to plant or harvest in the near future. And then what they did was they grabbed some of the captives that they thought were maybe possible servants and they dragged them home into captivity. Now imagine you're sitting in exile in Babylon Okay, Mordor. And so like, okay, that is not a good idea. And what we find is the most remarkable moment in the history of the people of God, they repent, genuinely, fervently repent. They turn back to God. They say, Lord, what we did by going our own way, doing our own things, 
we want to repent of, we want to come back to you. And some of the things that they did were remarkable and still stand today. One of them was they began to gather scripture, Moses' writings and fragments of their history and the prophetic words that were spoken by Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these guys. And they gathered together and they got what we have today as our Old Testament. And they also, another thing that's still lasting today, they started church. They called it synagogue. But they began to gather on a weekly basis because what they needed to do, what they recognized they needed to do was they realized we dare not cross God. We have to toe the line. Never again will we be dragged off. Never again will we witness our family being executed and lose our homes and our homeland. Not on my watch. Not on my watch. I will make sure I dot every I and cross every T. And don't you dare cross the line. Dennis, those shady eyes, I'm watching you. Yeah, and those bluff O's, Giovanni, that tattoo, what's with that? I'm going to have to make sure I'm, I'm policing you. And this is where the Pharisees came onto the scene. Self-appointed policemen. So what began as a beautiful turn of a heart back to their father ended in this beast of Pharisees and legalism, and what we call colloquially as religion. See, basically what they thought was they thought, okay, my relationship with, with God is works-based. My self-worth, whether he borpers me or not, is works-based. My salvation, if I want to be saved from these enemies and saved from my situation, is works-based. And religion was formed among the people of God. Now you fast forward a couple hundred years and Paul's on the scene. Now, he's taken this thing and he's added his own little mixture to it. And so as we read earlier on, Galatians 1.13 said, he goes around intensely persecuting the church. Try to destroy the church. He says, I was advanced in Judaism, which can go over our heads, if we don't realize that being a Judaizer was a badge of honor. Judaizers, and this is the definition, are those who had remained absolutely loyal to the Jewish faith and practice while policing and persecuting those who failed to do so. And we read him doing that in the book of Acts. talks about him ravaging the church. That's a word that you use of wild animals tearing apart their prey. Going from house to house, dragging Christians off to prison. Celebrating the stoning of Stephen. And in his words, he said, I went about breathing murderous threats. That's this man who was persecuting. I went about breathing murderous threats. Now, I want to say very, very gently, doesn't this sound like a lot of what's happening in the Middle East right now? This should shock you. But we often look at Paul and we go like, sure, that was terrible. But no, 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 it should shock you. Like the footage we see from the Middle East. Because that is exactly what he was about. It should shock us as it was meant to shock them why would Paul mention this? If he's trying to win the hearts of the church in Galatia, why would he mention this very dark past if not to shock them? If not to say, guys, I've been there before. You do not want to add works to the gospel. You do not want to take this free gift and twist it into religion because that trajectory ends in death. And so he uses very weighty, very confrontational words like he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
because he's looking at this, and all he can see is red flags. He says, guys, stop. 3CI, stop. Do you not realize? But we don't, because we grew up in a religious city. Maybe you grew up in a religious home, and that's the norm. Do better, try harder. You might just possibly gain my approval if you do. <laughs> Chances are very slim that you'll gain God's approval. I mentioned many years ago, if you had to summarize my view, of what, what I thought God thought when he looked at me, one word, I would say disappointment. And we live there. And Paul's trying to get their attention. He said, don't you see these red flags? Religion has crept in, but we don't see it. So I want to let Jesus maybe highlight some of these red flags before we take a look at how we can get out of this place that creeps in so sneakily in those dark spaces of our hearts. And so we're going to turn to Luke 15 and take a look at a story Jesus tells to a bunch of Pharisees. Okay, remember, Paul was a Pharisee. He calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's like the, the point of the spear. He's out there to decimate and destroy any form of the gospel. And so Jesus is now preaching to a room full or a hill full of Pharisees and scribes and, and teachers of the law, those who are there to police the people. And he's trying to tell them the same thing. He's trying to say, listen, guys, don't go down this way. This ends in death. I have come so that you might, might have life and life to the full. I've come to give you the free gift of salvation. Get yourself out of the gutter. And so he tells the story of a younger brother and an older brother. The younger brother, you might know the story, decides, you know what, I've had enough of dad and working on the farm. I want my inheritance. I'm out of here. Very much like Israel did all those hundreds of years ago. And this younger brother disappears in the parable of the prodigal son. And he squanders his inheritance. You know, I was looking at the original Greek. He buys a Land Rover. I mean, why he would want to do that? Spends his money on repairs <laughs> and towing. Spends his money on wild parties and prostitutes. And then once he has lost it all, he thinks to himself, well, I'm either going to starve living off pig squalor or maybe my dad will accept me back as a slave. And so he goes back home and the father runs to this younger brother as he's returning home, pl plotting and planning his slave speech. But think of it from the Pharisee's side. Think of it through the lens of the Middle East right now. You know what the Pharisees are expecting the father to do? Get him down on his knees, set up that camera, have a whole bunch of balaclavered men stand behind them with their AK-47s and the family flag, and execute that sinner. Because he's been with prostitutes and pigs. That's the end of religion. When our relationship with our Heavenly Father is based on works, when our self-worth is based on works, when our salvation is based on work, when our coming back to our Father is based on works, execute them. That's all you deserve. And so Jesus tells the story of how the Father embraces him, puts a ring on his finger, a robe over his shame, puts sandals on his feet. Only sons wore sandals. And then they have this party. But clearly... Their eyes were glazed over. Maybe like yours are today. Not so bad with religion. And so he takes a Pharisee and puts a Pharisee in the story in the form of the older brother. And this is where I want to show you some of these red flags that maybe you can relate as a religious person like you and I. 
verse 25 of Luke 15, Jesus says, Meanwhile, the older brother, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. If your Bible is not too holy, you can underline that. Became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, you, all these years I've been slaving for you, and, you, you never dis- and I never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf. Should kill him, is what he's actually saying. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. Some red flags that Jesus raises with this older brother. Here's the first thing. First sign that you're heading this way, that Paul's trying to say, guys, back away from religion, is that older brothers, the religious, legalistic, are always duty-driven. Notice that he was in the field, not at the feast. He was in the field, duty-driven. And maybe you've said this, I'm the first at the office and the last to leave. We wear it like a Judaizer badge. <laughs> hey, in this city, I'm always the first to arrive, the last to leave. <laughs> because we are performance-based, not presence-based. And the very root behind that is this insecurity that maybe I haven't done enough. Maybe the others are doing more, so I've got to come in really, really early and outdo everybody, and make sure everyone knows, and then I'm the last to leave. But actually, there's bitterness in there. Your wife's not seeing you, and she's moaning, and your kids are always driven by duty. Ladies, should you ever lie in bed at night and suddenly you realize, I haven't washed the dishes, and get up and go wash the dishes because you can't sleep with a dirty house? You need to ask yourself, am I duty-driven? What is the reason? What is the underlying reason? Now, I'm, not, I'm not dissing excellence and clean homes, please. <laughs> but what's the underlying thing there? Somewhere, somehow, something has gotten into your head that the cleanliness of your house is a measure of you, of who you are. Sure. Works-based. And to all the husbands that are sort of laughing and nudging, Later on in this week, when your wife is now lying in bed with dirty dishes and she's twitching, <laughs> turn to her and say, babes, just apply the gospel. <laughs> while I apply the gospel and go wash the dishes for you. <laughs> you see, because it's not a do or don't do. It's why. What is driving this? What are you trying to fill? What emptiness is telling you you're not good enough? You've got to try harder. Abikimir. Duty driven. The second thing we see there, if you underlined it, angry, raw, raised this last week. Angry. He said, Where's your joy gone? I read this quote. So it's a. a a Bible scholar looked at the behavioral patterns of this 
older brother, this religious guy, and he came up with this paragraph. He says, older brothers, religious, legalistic Christians, have an undercurrent of anger toward life circumstances. Are you a grumpy old fart? (laughs) Hold grudges long and bitterly. Look down at people of other races, religions, and lifestyles. You're like, what? You polish your fellies. What is wrong with you? Yeah, I mean, khaki matches khaki. We know that. So you don't have to have khaki socks, khaki shorts, khaki shirts. Or ladies, do you see your nails? Yeah, welcome to the 90s. Don't you know you can have curtain bangs? Plain bangs are so old school. We look down at people of other races, religions, and lifestyles. We experience life as joyless, crushing drudgery. We have little intimacy and joy in their prayer lives. Hey, performance or presence? What did your quiet time look like this morning? No quiet time at all. Because, well, what's the use? I can never make God happy. Hmm? Have little intimacy and joy in their prayer lives and have a deep insecurity that makes them overly sensitive to criticism and rejection, yet fierce and merciless in condemning others. Can I get an ana? <laughs> So I'm prepping for this, and I was involved in, in um, our kids' school. My kids go to a Christian school, and I've always heard about a, a, a certain teacher at this Christian school who is just too much, always angry, always in your face, always, 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 and happened to bump into them and witness firsthand this always, 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 this begrudging lifelessness. And I find myself looking at them going like, I wonder about their salvation. They must be saved because it's a prerequisite to teach at a Christian school. But then I begin to think like, it must be really hard in that home. It must be really hard in that heart because it just seems to be dripping religion. And I'm thinking that, and my daughter says to me, and I quote, I sent it to Sunday school, because she's not allowed in the church. She says to me, Dad, you know a lot of my friends are scared of you. (laughs) Sensitive to criticism and rejection, yet fierce and merciless in condemning others. Here I am looking at this teacher thinking, you really need the gospel. And there my daughter's friends are looking at me and going, yo, pastor, you really need the gospel. Yeah, okay, moving right along. The next one. (laughs) The older brother is prone to exclude, not include. Religion excludes rather than includes. And you notice he says, this son of yours squandered your inheritance, his inheritance on prostitutes. Have you forgotten? Exclude. And I've been looking at this, and this has bothered me. Because if it means that by nature, religion excludes, because all you're doing is this competitive advantage. I'm better than you. You haven't done this. And we're pointing out all the time, fault, 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 fault. I'm better. Exclude, exclude. Go and sort yourself out, then come back to church. If that's the case, if older brothers exclude rather than include, then it means if 3CR doesn't have many younger brothers on a Sunday, 
who've squandered inheritance on prostitutes and tattoos. And If 3CR doesn't have many younger brothers, it probably means there are more older brothers in 3CR than we'd like to admit. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming for you. Don't worry about me and my daughter. Hey? But let's not talk about 3CR because that's easy, because that's them. What about your home? What about your family? Would you say that your family thinks of you as always looking down and condescending and thinking like, that, that mess is your fault? How was Christmas last year? <laughs> was it an inclusive moment? Because you came alongside them with the gospel? Or was it an excluding moment? Because finally you told them that you've got to sort this out and that out. And yeah, you're probably pregnant again. And yeah, you moved in with your boyfriend. It's excluding, not including. What about your circle of friends? No, no, no. I, I fellowship up. That is utter BS. You're a religious bigot. And its end is death. Last one, and this is the, the heaviest one, is that this parable ends. Jesus leaves the older brother outside. Okay, think about that. He's talking to a room full of Pharisees and scribes and teachers of the law, and he leaves them outside, which means the sinful, rebellious younger brother is able to accept the grace of God, the forgiveness for his sins, and he's welcome back into the home, whereas the legalistic older brother stays outside, which means, I'm sorry, you've turned into the bad guys, <laughs> Which means the lover of prostitutes enters the presence of his father. The lover of legalism does not. Now, I'm not saying he's not wrong. They are equally as wrong. Both living lives that separated them from the father. The one through the rebellion, the other one through religion. They're equally as wrong, but they're not equally as dangerous, it would seem. Which is why Paul goes after the Galatians with such fire. But he plants the seed of hope. What does he say? He says, the very one who was persecuting is now preaching the gospel. There's even hope for us older brothers. Us prickly, opinionated, self-righteous, religious older brothers. So what is this hope? How do we go into the gospel. How do we overcome this thing? I'm gonna, I'm gonna pin the first half for just a second. We'll get back there. Look at the power. If that's the problem, where do we get the power to actually genuinely be free and not slide back into this all the time, into our old ways? How do we get rid of all our baggage, all our preconceived ideas, everything we've ever grown up thinking God thinks of us? How do we get there? What is the secret source. Where, where does the power lie? Well, to answer that, I'm going to go back to last week's sermon. For those of you who are here, Rory, at one moment, he told us about a friend who'd been struggling with bulimia for 40 years. And then he said to his friend, he said, well, this is, this is how you overcome bulimia. He said, while you're leaning over that toilet bowl vomiting and staring into your puke 
and the carrots and peas. There's, there's always carrots and peas. I don't know what, like, why are they? You haven't eaten carrots and peas for months, and then there they are. So while you, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm a visual person. And he said to her, while you're staring into that bowl in shame, he said, this is how you overcome that. You say, I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I have the righteousness of Christ. I am the righteousness of Christ. And you are sitting there going like, what? How is that going to help? Now, if that was your response, you are not alone in your response. But you're also not biblical in your response. So I went back and I listened through Rory's sermon and I framed a paragraph of what he was saying that I just want to unpack quickly. He said, you cannot change such things through mere willpower, through learning biblical principles and trying to carry them out. That's religion. Works. We can only change permanently. You see, this is what we're after. We're after permanent internal change. You can only change permanently as we take the gospel more deeply into our understanding and into our hearts. And then he used this phrase, apply the gospel. Just apply the gospel. And that can be like, well, raise the shield of faith, which is like, okay, how? So I want to show you how. Right? You cannot change such things through mere willpower, through learning biblical principles and trying to carry out. We can only change permanently as we take the gospel more deeply into our understanding and into our hearts as we apply the gospel. So this is what it means. Say, for example, you come to 3CI and you've been here for a couple of months and you suddenly realize this is a room full of unbelievably good people, generous to a fault. And it's not stirring in you. You want to be more generous. Okay. This side of the equation, the religious says, okay, I must give more. I must increase my giving in my budget, and I must this and I must that. But we don't find that in Scripture. Actually, when Paul writes to the Corinthians to encourage them for an offering that was going to happen, he doesn't say, listen, I'm an apostle, so I'm going to check your bank accounts. Here's your tithe number. If it doesn't reflect, you're in trouble. He also doesn't you know, send them photos of Ethiopians starving. This is what he does. This is 2 Corinthians 8. He says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, it for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He just says, gaze on the gospel, the grace of God. Saturate yourself in what he has done for you. And once this thing begins to sink from your head into your heart, it will naturally overflow. You remember Rory used the word kratos. It's engaging with the power of the gospel. Until then, it's only a to-do list. And it is only religion. Or another one. Your marriage is taking strain. And so Paul sits down with you. And he says, but, you know, it's come to our attention that you need proper help and a few clubs. You know, he doesn't say, have you met Dennis and Annie? Look at that marriage. If you can just duplicate that. No. He writes in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. He's, he doesn't say, go and do this. You need to wash the dishes. He doesn't say that. He says, no, no, no. Gaze on the gospel. Get to know the heart of the Father. Allow this gospel to captivate you. Jesus did that for me. And this is the least that I can do for my wife. Or maybe you're saying, yeah, 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 but I've read Philippians 2 that says, do nothing 
out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And then he says, consider others as more important than yourself. And then he says, another to do, don't just look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Yeah, but how does he say they are to get to that point? Well, the next verse says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He's saying adopt that, adopt it. See, somehow, Scripture firmly believes like father, like son. And if you hang around the father, if you get to know who he is, if you get to know his ways, if you allow that to captivate your mind and give you an understanding and wash over all your idiosyncrasies and selfishness and everything, by nature, the gospel bears fruit. Those who abide in me bear much fruit. We're after fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't come with a to-do list. It comes with rolling around and saturating ourselves and marinating in the gospel. Kratos. So in other words, the solution to your stinginess is not a checklist. It's marinating yourself in the gospel, looking at Jesus. Once it captivates you, you begin to see opportunities. It changes you on the inside. Your marriage, it changes you on the inside. Your religiosity, it will change you on the inside over time. Now, I know you're sitting there going like, okay, that's just, I never really looked at it that way. I've never seen that in Scripture before. It's kind of strange, but I I'm, I'm maybe might lean that way. So let me tell you one last story. And that is on the book of Galatians that we are marinating ourselves in. I don't know if you've heard of the name Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King Jr. I have a dream. But the Martin Luther of the Reformation. I don't know how much you know about that backstory. I'd always heard, and that's true, that it began because of his unpacking of Romans. The just shall live by faith. Because if there was one guy who was uber-religious, it was Martin Luther. He would climb the stairs going into church and repent of everything he could while on his knees and hoping by the time he gets to the top there, he hasn't forgotten something and he might be able to enter like uber religious. And then he came across Romans that says, the just shall live by faith. And I thought from there we had the Reformation, but that was actually just the aha moment. You know what happened that triggered the Reformation? Was he got into the book of Galatians. October, ironically, 1516, he decided he's going to do a line-by-line expository preaching series at the Wittenberg Church through the book of Galatians. And a year later, after marinating in the gospel, after allowing this thing to recalibrate his mind, his heart, and his very inner being, he stands at the door and nails those 95 theses, and the Reformation erupts. And that is what I'm inviting you to. If I have a title to the sermon, it will probably be to be continued. Because that's what the book of Galatians is about. It's about slowly but surely identifying the religious spirit in us that shows up in all these warts and ways. And then getting into Scripture and saying, God, would you come? Would you wash? It might take a whole year, like it did for Martin Luther until this character of God begins to form in us, but my invitation to you is, would you just come? Would you just allow the gospel to slowly recalibrate? Allow the questions and doubts and what? 
apply the gospel while you're vomiting. Just, that's fine. But just come next week and just read through Galatians and just marinate on his word and just bring those religious idiosyncrasies to God and allow him to set us free and ignite us as a community over the next few weeks and months. In a word, I'll say this. Just keep one foot in the water. I read a book recently. It's called, it was written by a guy named David Bora. Uh, he, he writes this book on the American Special Forces. Um, it's called The American Special Forces. <laughs> and in there, he deals with all the different special forces. Kent, you would love this. And he goes to the Navy SEALs, and he spends some time with them, and he's busy documenting how they process warfare and everything like this. And he keeps hearing this phrase, just keep one foot in the water. And that is my charge to you, 3CR. Just keep one foot in the water. And he goes, what is this one foot in the water thing? And so they say to him, well, have you ever wondered why it's Navy SEALs, not Army SEALs or Air Force SEALs? You only get Navy SEALs. And he said this, and he's such a good wordsmith. He says, Navy SEALs are first and foremost warriors who come from the sea and return to its silent darkness when their work is done. (laughs) Navy SEALs, foremost warriors who come from the sea and return to its silent darkness when their work is done. Why? Because that's their distinction. They are most comfortable, most confident, and most capable in water. So it doesn't matter what they're doing. Even when they're going to get Osama bin Laden, their op starts in the sea and ends in the sea. And they always know where the sea is. Because if they ever get in trouble, that's where they're going. So they always orientate themselves around the sea. And then he puts this line and he says, so we, we know as Navy SEALs, it may be a level playing field here, but when I retreat into the water, we're no longer playing fair. It's like the Matrix. <laughs> we, it, we, yeah, it might be a level playing field here, but when I retreat to water, we're no longer playing fair. I might get into trouble here. When I get into that water, everything changes. And so my invitation, 3CR, might be a level playing field here. But when we get into the water, when we saturate ourselves with the gospel, when we jump into the river of God, we're no longer playing fair. God is going to come and he's going to circumcise hearts. He's going to set us free. He's going to show us blind spots. He's going to restore marriages because you're no longer this prickly, opinionated, angry guy. But instead, you've gotten into the water and things are different. And he's slowly restoring and appointing the gospel in your heart. So that is my invitation to you, 3CR. Keep coming. Keep questioning. But keep one foot in the water. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your unbelievable patience with us. But I also want to thank you, Father, for there's something in the air. There's a sizzle of expectation of the 3CR in this season. When I look at Galatians, when I look at our city, when I look at the history books of how the Reformation erupted on the back of an understanding of your gospel of grace, then I ask, Heavenly Father, would you do that here? Would you do that in my heart? Would you do that in my home? Would you do that to the, to the religious affinities that we have, blind spots that we haven't seen forever, that is wreaking havoc in our families, in our workplace, 
in our schools. Lord Jesus, would you come? As we keep one foot in the water, would you constantly marinate us in the gospel and allow your character to be formed in us and the city to be better off because of it. In Jesus' name.